Today on episode number 371 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Simon Dully joins me to talk about peer mentoring. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Simon Dully is a teacher and researcher within the Department of Psychology at the University of Groningen, where he also serves as chair of the Education Committee. Simon is passionate about the role peer mentors can play in enabling their student mentees to best navigate the academic, bureaucratic, and social challenges of university life. His current interest in this regard is focused on exploring the ways in which peer mentors can build and maintain supportive learning communities, as well as implement motivational interviewing into their mentoring practice. Simon, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks, Bonnie. It's great to be here. Let's begin by having you tell us a little bit about what is peer mentoring and what are a few of the forms that it can take? Well, a peer mentor is where, well, to define what a peer mentor is, a peer mentor is where a, a more qualified, experienced student provides guidance and support to another student. And there are lots of different aspects to peer mentoring, but I'll, I'll describe the way that we see the peer mentor at the University of Groningen and how they provide guidance and support. Well, first of all, they provide guidance and support in the academic domain. So they engage with students in terms of teaching. So they lead practical classes in support of a lecture. And in addition to that content, they also provide and support students in adopting study strategies. They also provide emotional and social support to students. Uh, as you can imagine, I'll return to this later in our conversation, that when a student arrives at the university, particularly first-year students, it's a difficult transition, you feel overwhelmed. So the peer mentor is someone who's uh, contactable for them via WhatsApp, in the classroom, etc., who can give them knowledge about how to deal with landlords, who to go and see for particular issues that they have. And then they also provide bureaucratic support Hmm. in terms of navigating the bureaucracy of a large university. And this is about communicating to students the hidden curriculum, Mm -hmm. you know, where to go if there's a problem, what to do, etc. So our students provide guidance support across those, those domains, but they're also influential in terms of being a role model. They're... They're the embodiment of a successful student. And so, you know, we always tell our students that they're always on stage and uh, students are always looking at how they behave and they lead by example. The point is that students see how these our students behave and hopefully it's professional and they'll adopt those uh, professional behaviours. So that's 
what a peer mentoring is. That's how we conceptualize it at the University of Grindr. And could you describe a little bit, Simon, the philosophy that underpins your use of peer mentoring in your curriculum? Well, the philosophy is ultimately about connection. Mm. And having taught for several years, I'm a man of a certain age. And when I'm trying to connect with students, it's very difficult because I'm older, there's an authority position, and students may, they may not fully open up. And so the teaching environment is, for them, it's less safe. And my underlying philosophy is to what is an essential prerequisite for effective teaching is a safe social environment where the student feels authentically accepted and they feel safe. And because of my position, it's difficult to do that. The advantage of the peer mentor is they're of a similar level in terms of, they call it cognitive congruence. So they have the same knowledge, they have the same language. And because of that, they're more able to see the challenges and difficulties that students may face, more sensitive to it than I am. And they may be able to communicate and express it in a more understandable language than I would be able to. And that facilitates a sense of trust between the students. And as a consequence, students can more easily self-disclose and therefore are more able to be helped by the, the peer mentor. Another important factor is they call it social congruence in, in the sense that peer mentors are on the same social level. And this relates to the authority position. It's less hierarchical. And again, that contributes to a sense of safety for the students where they can share ideas and they're willing to take, actually, intellectual risks. This is something for me, Simon, that has been really important to be cognizant of. So, because I like to think of myself, I, I it, a couple of months ago, I just had my 50th birthday, but in my head, I, I don't mean to make this necessarily about an age thing, but but I, I think that I perceive myself as fitting in better than I actually do. So at some point, and, and again, it's not just age, it is sometimes just the vocabulary, like you mentioned, you know, having a more expansive vocabulary than some of the students. And, and uh, I, I try to keep my language simple, but I'm not always successful at doing that. Although <laughs> um, it depends which context I'm in. But I mean, in a classroom with 18 to 22 year olds, it's often that I might use a word that would be not understood. And I think we should be doing and I get the sense from what you said, we should be doing what we can to reduce some of that power differential. So you'll hear about, do we always have to stand at the front behind a lecture thing with our notes and there literally is the phys physical distance there? Or could yeah. could we, I, I've heard from many faculty who will sit down and we're in more of a circle thing. And if that's not available, then they might sit in the back of the classroom and invite others to share. You know, it just, there are ways that I think we should continue to strive to make more of that safe space while at the same time going, I am always going to be, you know, if not older than them, then I'm always going to be, there will be this power differential because of the dynamic and some people's picture that they have of a teacher, some cultures, you know, when they come into the space, as much as I try, there's things I can't do that peer mentors can do. So thank you so much for sharing that. Would you talk a little bit about what are some of the common challenges that you see then 
students having as they come into the university? You did talk about the hidden curriculum. I know that's a big one, but what are some of the other ones? And then how do you see the peer mentors able to support them in these unique ways as they go through these kinds of challenges? Yeah, well, as you know, the I mean, the particular challenge that stands out is that is that the student arrives, the first year student arrives at university, and I, I believe they're completely overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Firstly, it may be a new city. In actual fact, it may be a new country. We have a lot of international students here, and we run a lot of English programs. They may come from a previous educational environment where the, the source of motivation was the teacher mm-hmm. and the parents. They, and then they come to this environment where it's mu- very much independent learning. So they've got to learn a new way of learning and they've got to ad- adapt to the university culture. They've got to perhaps make new friends. They may be homesick, etc. So these are the challenges of that transition. And I, and I believe the peer mentor is more able to help them than, than I would be. And what's the reason for that? I think one term underpins everything that is similarity. Mm-hmm. The cognitively similar, the socially similar. And, you know, they've been through it. They're able to express solutions in a language that student understands, the first year student. And they've lived it. They've done it. They've been successful for it. So we always tell the, the peer mentors to always promote a sense of similarity with the student, some psychological similarity. So tell narratives and stories about how they struggle. You know, I like to term it, so they tell a heroic narrative, how they struggled, overcame it, and, you know, succeeded. And therefore, the students will see them as achievable role models. If they did it, I can do it. And what kinds of ways do you go about training the peer mentors? I imagine that I mean, you mentioned <laughs> how you've already talked actually a number of times. You said we want them to understand what their role is and how important their modeling is. But I know that you've got a whole curriculum just to get them trained and up to speed. We have a, a formal training program. Students uh, write a motivation letter. We have an interview and look at, we look at the grades and there's a, the careful selection procedure. And they go through training in terms of to say what a peer mentor is and what a peer mentor does. And we kind of emphasize that the peer mentor isn't just working on an individual level. Each peer mentor will have a small learning community. So they just not only focus on the individual relationship with each student, they also focus on creating a learning community, building connections between the students that they mentor. So they they have uh, courses on uh, group dynamics. They'll have lessons on self-regulated learning because they've got to teach students independent learning. This is essential for their success at, uh, at our university to be able to work independently and efficiently on, on their own or with others. Uh, we tell about motivation. Uh, we t- focus on diversity issues, intercultural competence, etc. Mm. So it's a pretty thorough training program for our peer mentors. Would you talk a little bit more, Simon, about what you see as some of the key elements that are locked inside of this hidden 
curriculum unless we make it more transparent? What are some of the things that you find you have to help them sort of unlock for newer students? Well, the hidden curriculum concerns, you know, there's uh, who to, you know, uh, if they've got landlord problems, who to go for help at the university, where to get official support if they've got particular problems, so where the student advisors are. If they're suffering from particular problems, who to contact, you know, psychologists, et cetera. So it, it's just uh, acting as a bridge to uh, formal advice for particular problems that students may be, may be facing. Mm-hmm. Also, another part of that is telling students how to study. I've called it self-regulated learning, but it's, it's always a surprise to me that students have very little knowledge about studying independently so teaching them study strategies teaching them to get into study groups and make a study diary how to make effective goal setting you know some of the things that you're describing and at the risk of potentially alienating much of the listening audience right now you say students don't know how to study Uh, In my experience, neither do faculty because we think of it as, you know, when I was at university, it was always pull out the textbook and highlight and review my highlights. And of course, we've learned that that actually I would have been better off to get some more sleep than to review notes because it's such a passive form of learning. So we really have discovered a lot about how learning happens. And so I feel like, you know, students don't know. uh, Also, faculty don't know. So sometimes if you have this formal program that can really help bridge that gap between where most people in their doctoral programs don't take classes on how to teach they take classes and, and produce research on their own bodies of disciplinary knowledge. But this is really where there can be a really big gap in much of higher education. And this is just one way of bridging that gap. You also talked a little bit about the different forms. Many universities, I, I mean, I would even say probably all of them have some kind of tutoring. And then many of them have discovered that the tutoring doesn't go far enough. What that is called, at least in the STEM fields here in the United States, is called supplemental instruction, often abbreviated SI. And so we have an SI program that sounds like it is somewhat similar to your peer mentoring when it's that disciplinary knowledge. So if a class is particularly challenging for students to learn, or perhaps the faculty member might be challenged in their own teaching capabilities, then you have these peer mentors. And again, we don't call them, actually, maybe we do call them peer mentors. Ah, if anyone's listening from my university, I may have just said that uh, incorrectly. So we have these, these students who both attend the lecture, but then also are able to make that lecture come a little bit more alive through active learning and group learning, peer learning, that kind of thing. But that's really within the domain of the discipline. And then it sounds like you also have these things which, you know, more student success oriented things. So you're really you're bridging across a lot of different areas. How is that structured then? Is it is that all under one auspice or is it kind of happens in a lot of different places? I think you're I mean, you're a much larger institution than the one that I teach at. Yeah, we well, we, we call them learning communities. So in the this year, for example, the first semester, which is eight weeks, those students stay in that learning community for the whole year. 
And in the first part of the semester, the course is structured towards developing uh, knowledge of research methods in psychology. And they also have another sessions in the same learning community, the same 10 to 12 people. They'll also get together, uh, led by Pimenta, to focus on the development of general academic skills, referencing, scientific writing, critical thinking, etc. So, as I said earlier, the point is we, we focus on the peer mentor, but the peer mentor is working on it at two levels to support the individual, but also to really manage and establish and sustain a learning community throughout the year. Because it isn't just the peer mentor that we want to support the students. We want the students to support each other. Mm-hmm. And how does it work as far as the peer mentors? are? I know you mentioned they get selected. What does it mean to have been selected? Am I going to receive remuneration of some kind or or is it part of a class? What? How is that part structured? There is some monetary reward once they go over a certain set of hours. What they do get, it is part, they get credits for being a peer mentor. And obviously, they get a nice certificate at the end of the year. Of course, year. of course, they'd have to. <laughs> And that is, I suspect, I mean, what a learning opportunity. How much more do we learn when we're able to see what these things look like in the very messy world of interacting with other human beings and trying to foster this kind of environment? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've talked about that there are benefits to the students who receive the mentoring from the, the peer mentor, but there are also benefits to the, to the peer mentor. You know, teaching is to learn twice. And many times at the end of the uh, time as a peer mentor, they, they come and talk to me and say, wow, I really know about uh, academic skills and research methods. Yeah. So it, it, everyone benefits, I think, mm-hmm. peer mentors and the students. And you talked a little bit as you corresponded with me about one way that you're starting to adapt your curriculum, and that was through something called motivational interviewing. What can you tell us about why you saw a need for that to be brought into the curriculum and what you're thinking about doing moving forward? Well, what comes from the feedback every year from the students who are part of the peer mentor classes is that they really, they do actually appreciate the peer mentors. They do see a warm, safe environment. And I think we don't take advantage of that safe learning environment in terms of motivating students. So we, we give them information. But we're not using techniques to actually energize them to adopt these particular strategies. Uh, I used to be uh, a motivational interviewer in the area of uh, exercise psychology. And motivational interviewing is kind of a helping conversation that focuses on how and why people can change become motivated to change their unhealthy lifestyle. And I think in this way, we can use peer mentors because of the unique position. They're maybe in a better position to influence and energize students more than I would be able to because the students will feel more open and more receptive to their messages. So what we hope to do is teach this technique called motivational interviewing to students at a, at a very to peer mentors on a very basic level. I would imagine that that there may be some challenges in trying to have people recognize the difference between the profession of 
providing therapeutic services to people and me coming alongside you as a peer mentor. I mean, helping them understand the difference between those two things. I and mean, that's something that comes up, of course, with faculty. Some some would be completely, oh, I'm so completely uncomfortable with any of this, so I'm going to keep this big wall. And then some that maybe don't always recognize to self-identify, boy, this person really needs help that goes beyond me. How, how do you help them be able to make those distinctions? Well, I think what we're going to do is, is communicate clearly that motivational interview. And although it had a, originally a clinical basis, it's used across a whole set of domains. And we'll communicate how we're going to do that. And obviously, if uh, students feel threatened or don't want to be involved, then they've got the right to withdraw from this uh, technique mm -hmm. but it's also used in uh, in schools uh, you know in terms of just a conversation it's just basically listening and evoking uh, what's called change talk from students and uh, you know in my experience students struggle at first to adopt this independent learning and it'll all the motivational interviewing will focus on is building, uh, well, drawing out the confidence and uh, motivation for change, focusing on how important studying should be, conversations about making it more important, conversations about building confidence for them to be able to become a, a self-regulated learner. I have not talked about this very much, if at all, on the podcast, but many, many decades ago, before I was in higher education, I used to work in the franchise industry. And it was a really fascinating job. Talk about learning a lot. My degree was not in business, but now I teach in, in business. And so people are all often surprised by that. You would probably appreciate that I got more out of psychology, I think, in terms of being able to be effective in business than I might have if I had majored in business back in the day. But at any rate... Part of my job, and it's embarrassing to admit this, was to teach sales skills. And I, I can't, I mean, it's like <laughs> telling someone you worked for the cigarette industry or something like that. <laughs> but your motivational, you sent over an article, which I'll post in the show notes, reminds me a lot of that because I would meet a lot of people who had learned throughout their profession basically to manipulate other people and to have very transactional kinds of relationships and sort of trick people. They call them closing skills. So, you know, wouldn't you get people, you've probably heard these things, get them to say yes three times and then you've got them, you know, and it's just like, I thought, I mean, these are horrendous <laughs> approaches. Why would you want to live that way? And so to help them think of their role as a helping role, these people have challenges. And then I actually have things. It was a computer training company. So I have things that could help them if, or help their employees if they had these skills, if they were able to use Microsoft Excel better. I'm completely oversimplifying it, but a lot of times people would jump straight to the fix. What are your challenges? Yeah. Oh, would you like 3,700 Microsoft Excel? Or would you like our club membership? And you can come anytime you want and take these classes. And we'd have to slow them down. That's not what a consultative, or in this case, a peer mentoring relationship looks like. So the article you sent, it's not just what are the challenges, but how are they affecting you? And to, so we slow ourselves down and we start to realize, oh, gosh, you know, me staying up too late, not getting enough sleep. Well, how that's affecting me is then I can't I keep sleeping in. I can't even get up for my classes and helping people be able to walk through and see the impact of how their current state is 
And then we might be ready once we really go, oh, this is just not working for me to see what that next step might look like. I really liked the approach and I'm sort of laughing and hoping that maybe the podcast editor might see fit to delete this part of my life that I try to keep hidden in a deep, deep, dark closet. (laughs) I think think you make a lot of, a lot of sense there, Donnie. I mean, central to motivational interviewing is this evoking, you're Mm -hmm. drawing out motivation. You can offer solutions, but you're not, you're trying to avoid what's called the writing reflex telling them what to do. What you're trying to do is to get the students, the students claim ownership and be responsible for the uh, positive change. Mm, I love it. Well, this is the time in the show where we each get to give our recommendations. And the reason I'm sort of jumping abruptly to that, Simon, is because I'm going to share two tweets and one of them perfectly lines up with what you just said. <laughs> so the uh, I heard from Anne... And I'm, I apologize, Anne, I'm not going to say your last name right. I think it's Gagne, perhaps. But she she shared this tweet. She says, oh, my goodness, I laughed so hard at this tweet. And so did I. So a tweet from Mark Lewis. It says, if you've ever said, quote, sorry, this slide is so busy. I have massive news for you about who controls the content of your PowerPoint presentation. And this to me brought in my doctoral research was in, was on something called locus of control. And I do tend to be more of an internal locus of control. So what can we do about, I mean, it's the same thing. Like how could we affect change in our own lives and in our own PowerPoints? At the, so I mean, the number of times you sat in a presentation where they go, Oh, I'm just so sorry. This is so busy. Like, you, the person who just said that, could actually change your own PowerPoint slides and not have mm-hmm. to apologize for them. So it cracked me up. But of course, also, we know about cognitive load. And when we put, you know, 3,700 things on a PowerPoint slide, it's going to be too much for the human brain <laughs> to be able to process and provide that foundation for understanding, which could eventually lead to learning. So I love that. So thank you, Anne, for for pointing that one out. And then the second humorous one I have, gosh, with all the time we've been spending on our web conferencing tools, Josh Thompson tweeted, if you don't announce that you're going to share your screen, does it actually share? Mm. Very deep. <laughs> it's very deep. So I will have these in the show notes and I am going to pass it over to you, Simon, to whatever you would like to recommend today. Yeah, I, I recommended a book by uh, Nicholas Epley called MimeWise. And I think it's a fantastic book, mainly because it has the central message that we're actually not very good mind readers. We think we are. We're very confident that we know other people. We know their preferences, et cetera, but we are not good at that. We're not good at taking perspective. And I think the message from this book is that rather than assuming, rather than trying to read a mind, if you're unsure, always ask somebody Mm -hmm. to get their perspective. I love that. There's a a researcher, uh, also speaker, her name is Brene Brown. And one of the expressions that she uses, Simon, is, the story I'm telling myself right now is, and that's often where we can get into our messy, messed up thinking, where it's, if you just say that to, you know, I'm experiencing this thing. And a lot of times we ascribe intentions on other people or, or, or events that are happening. And we got to do that check because you're absolutely right. <laughs> We're so wrong so much of the time. But it really takes exactly. a lot of self-awareness and also courage to have those conversations and say, I, I noticed that 
you're looking at your watch. Is there somewhere you need to be or just, you know, to check <laughs> to check in, you know, because, oh, no, actually, I'm looking at my watch because and then the actual story on the other side. Boy, when we hear those things, transformative. Yeah, and I think this comes through just in your in your interactions with students and also interactions with colleagues at work. You know, ask, try and confirm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was having a great exchange via text this morning with a colleague, and she was talking about that she just discovered that her students don't watch her videos if they don't have any points associated with them. And she was kind of <laughs> transparently, you know, I'm kind of disappointed in that and like you were saying earlier I didn't want to tell her how to feel I didn't want to be writing but I sure felt like it when she was sharing this because I thought I thought you know it's it's in all of us so if we're if we say hey would you like to go for a walk tomorrow morning at 10 I'm more likely to go for a walk tomorrow morning if I set a time to it and we're going to meet up together than if I just think you know what maybe this week I'll go for a walk so it's kind of that same thing. I mean, my gosh, if this woman could see my podcasting cue, these are incredible podcasts that I value that I think are amazing, but I don't have to do them by a certain date. And I'm not doing as much commuting as I used to. So I can't keep up. I can't even keep up with my poor husband's own podcast, you know, which I also really love and treasure. And so she was taking it more personally. And I felt sad for her because I thought this is not that these aren't great videos. This is not that you're not you don't have great stories. I wish that she didn't have to ascribe it to that. It was somehow a reflection on the quality of her work. And But but as I say this, by the way, Simon, I do this in so many ways, too. It's really we can be very susceptible to it, can't we? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Simon, I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk a little bit today about peer mentoring and that we got to learn about this as we close the episode. Would you share a little bit if someone just feels that this is all too big for them? You know, because if they don't work at a large university, they don't already have things like this set up. How could we maybe shrink this down a little bit? What would be one little foothold that we might be able to have of just one small step we could take into some of the lessons that you've learned about the power of peer mentoring? I don't know. I, I always think sharing a problem is a good idea. Always talk to somebody because quite often they'll give you perspective. Mm. And if there's no one around, you know, I think it's all, I'm getting into the, the writings of uh, Christine Neff and self-compassion and be kind to yourself and recognizes this common humanity that it's, it's sometimes it's absolutely normal to feel overwhelmed. You know, it, it's not unusual. Don't be, don't be critical of yourself accept it and talk to somebody about it oh i love that i love that the other thing that i think of too in terms of what lessons we might draw from peer mentoring if we're not running a program or things like that is just it's not all on us how, how can we shift the burden to a more collective one and recognize the power of like you said earlier the power of listening power of asking questions I another colleague, we had an exchange a couple of days ago just about some of the difficult conversations coming up in the classrooms. And we can, I know myself, I just struggle where I think, oh gosh, I'm failing, I'm failing, I'm failing. And so often if I could free myself and just ask better questions and then really listen for the answers, that's where we can find ourselves, where it's not about us being the hero, fixing it. The responsibility is not entirely on us. 
how can we make this a shared responsibility to have a community for learning? And so that, that to me, so much of it is always about asking better questions and listening more, taking the pressure off of thinking I have to have those right answers. Yeah. Uh, we've had people talk about self-compassion previously on the show. I feel like maybe we need to add that to your recommendation. May I do that? Can I include that one as well in Absolutely, your recommendations? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the literature, and it seems like um, some that I should be. It seems really good, good stuff. So, thank you so much, Simon. I really enjoyed our conversation. You're welcome, Bonnie. It was it was a pleasure to be here and to to meet you. Once again, I'd like to thank Simon Dully for joining me for today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you'd like to visit the show notes for today's episode, they're at Teaching in Higher Ed dot com slash three seven one. They're also probably in your podcast player swiping in some direction, depending on the app that you're using. And I'd also like to encourage you if you haven't already to subscribe to the weekly teaching and higher ed update, where the show notes will come into your inbox, along with some other goodies, such as quotable words, recommendations that are in addition to the ones we share on the show, and a lot of other great resources. So head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe to sign up for that. And thanks to those of you who have already subscribed. I'll see you next time.